Hey everybody, welcome to Easter part one. We're building up towards Easter and it's a strange thing to contemplate that we may not be together at Easter, but through these coming weeks, I want to send out some devotionals each week for your family to do together or to you, for you to do on your own for your own personal devotions. Um, and then please get your answers back to me. There'll be questions at the end and I'll kind of summarize and, and let everyone know uh what what we're thinking and, and what we're connecting with and and a lot of times when I do email studies with people I'm blown away by their answers so please send your answers and uh, we'll just kind of stay connected in that way just going through God's word together in this march toward Easter but first uh, before we get started with the message let's pray father we thank you for this day and just with uh, all the doubt and anxiety and fear and and just isolation, uh, it can really get to us. But Lord, we have you every day. We're never alone. We're never without a moment where we can get deeper into your word and, and get closer to you through prayer. Uh, help us to email, text, call each other and stay connected that way. And really, Lord, give us strength and courage and joy in these strange times, your name. Amen. So we're going to look today at the man Jesus who was fully God and fully man. We looked at a few weeks ago what a strange world savior he is, uh, but what kind of man was and is God. We Jesus is God. So God was man and God, fully God and fully man. We're going to dig into that. And I want to really use the Old Testament and not go anywhere near the New Testament because we get a lot more from the Old Testament into the nature and thoughts of Jesus than really we get from the New Testament. In the Gospels, we have stories and accounts from the outside. We have men telling of what they saw and heard. And only a few times are we led into the mind of Christ, such as he knew their thoughts, or he was moved with compassion. And it's easy to forget how completely Christ is God, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that everything in Christ's nature is in God's nature. Every time God punished in the Old Testament or poured out his wrath, every time God suffered long, every emotional attribute, jealousy, anger, sadness, grief, that God has, Jesus has, and had, and does have, and, w and will always have. But when the prophets describe this coming Savior, they don't describe a mighty man, a godlike figure, an awe-inspiring man, or even a handsome man. And just think, think of Jesus in the hygiene of those days. What if Jesus didn't have white teeth? What if he was missing a tooth? I mean, we have... This picture of Jesus that we've had so shaped by culture and history of, of the Western just thought of what, what he is that can't be accurate. There was nothing about his form that was attractive. And I believe it is on purpose that Jesus had no stately form or majesty that we might be drawn to him for how he looked. We today as where those first followers are drawn to what really matters in a person. His nature, his character, his love, his compassion, and most of all, his purpose. 
that he would suffer for me is still shocking. So let's begin in the Psalms and looking into the nature and the thoughts and the mind of Christ. In Psalm 22, we can hear the thoughts of Christ as he was on the cross. We've heard the words from the book of John and from, from the other Gospels. But here from David's lips, he, was, he had a strange connection with the Holy Spirit. Um, I don't know what he thought, what David thought when he was giving this prophecy an inward struggle. And in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far, far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. You can't get any more specific than that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The exact words of Christ on the cross. In verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. In verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. And you lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. It's a terrible thing to hear. That's the anguish of our Savior. The most dignified being in existence, nailed like a writhing worm to a hunk of wood, stripped naked and exposed to those who find joy in it and self-righteous satisfaction in his torture, who mock him. Here, in the pinnacle of the Savior's purpose, we need to look at what kind of God-man this was that would endure this for us. And every proverb or wives, wise, wise saying, or old wives' tale, or wise saying of the Old Testament, we can apply it to Jesus' character and nature. Every description of a righteous man is a description of Jesus, who was the perfect man. And I want to look at Jeremiah 17, 7-8. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. And we could use this verse right now too. But Jesus was the man who trusts in the Lord, who was tapped into that quiet water, to that deep current of God's Spirit. He was always doing the will of his Father. He was always trusting him completely. Because he came as a man, he did not trust in himself, although he was God. He trusted as we can trust in the Father. And Jesus was a servant, the King of creation, the Lord of all, the one true God, not only dressed himself in our flesh, but took on the nature of a servant. Isaiah 42, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I have taken hold of your hand 
I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open, the, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. This is God almost boasting. I know what's going to happen before it happens. Let me tell you, this is exactly how it will be. So how is it when we hear the servant or we need to serve more uh, or we need a servant's heart? What is it in our nature that recoils from that? What is it in human nature in general that we struggle against the thought of debasing ourselves, of lowering ourselves, of putting ourselves below another person, of submission? The entire church is meant to submit to one another. Why do we push against that? It's pride. Pride of self, pride of position, of reputation, and so many other different kinds of pride. But the root of it is at the same fault as Adam and Eve. We could be like God. And the thought of being like God quickly corrupts into we could be God. It's the same seed of pride that was found in Satan. It's in you, it's in me, it's in every human. From the beginning, we can't even maintain our own existence. We couldn't even just exist in the perfect place. So God came down to show how this human thing should work. Basically, you really want to be like me? That's what Adam wanted. That's what Eve wanted. That's what Satan wanted. He's saying, okay, here's how it's done. It's the least attractive thing to Satan, to someone who's ruled and mastered by pride. I'm going to be humble and lowly, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. That's gentle, that's serving, that's meek. A little peek into the New Testament, a little cheating here. Matthew 20, 27 through 29, And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And it's important for us to be right here, right now. There are ways you can serve other people in this coronavirus quarantine that we're all in. Uh, really, just find a way to connect through Facebook, through any social media format, through phone calls, through text, just, hey, just checking on you, how you doing? It's really important. And especially, I, I think, for, for the church to remain spiritually connected, and then also for your friends, for your family that aren't Christians, to see someone reaching out and caring and wondering how they're doing, it's really important. And it's easy for Christians to be so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good, so wrapped up in just getting out of here or just building up my spiritual prowess and knowledge that we forget that Jesus was a very right here, right now focused person. It took him three years to change the world. Our Savior was sent not to do his time on earth and get out of there, but to live as we live and then to live forever on an earth that he has remade and perfected. For 30 years, he was a brother and a son and a friend. For 30 years, Jesus lived in a broken, plague-filled world and did not let his healing powers flow out. 
because it was not his time yet. And I often get confused at those 30 years. What was he doing? Why would he spend only a tenth of his life on earth in actual ministry? Why did he waste so much time? And then I remember that nothing God does is a waste of time. And we have a lot of time on our hands now uh, that could potentially be wasted. But it doesn't have to be. We can use it. We can fill our lives with purpose and and prayer and just diving into God's Word. It's so easy before this time to even find time to open up the Bible. And it's it's hard to instill these new habits. And oftentimes we just quickly go, and I've found myself with more time on my hands, just going to the things that aren't glorifying to God, that are just kind of comfort, quick fix, me, feel good kind of thing. Um, but I'm really striving and struggling and desiring to start to create better habits, to start to create more godly habits, and we got time to put it in practice. So really use this time. There was a purpose to where and how and how long it took for Jesus to grow up and to become this prophet, this respected, well-reputed man uh, that turned the world upside down. And there was a reason the prophets spoke of the coming of the Son of Man. He was to be truly and fully human, as truly and fully as he is God. That means a full life. And he could not have chosen, and he could have chosen, sorry, he could have chosen to be born in a palace. But like physical beauty, earthly comfort was not why Jesus came down. He wasn't concerned with it. He had no place to lay his head. How are we shaped by our desire for physical beauty and trying to look like what we think people want us to look for that respect when you walk in a room? How are we shaped? How are, decision, our, how are our decisions made? Uh, how is our hair how are, what are the, what's the importance we place on clothing and cars and house? How are we shaped by our desires for earthly comforts? And there's something we're getting a lesson in right now. We can't just go and do what we want now. Now we really have to consider one another. We have to think more on every decision. Is this worth the risk? And this Easter season, let's just spend a few moments reading why Jesus came. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his, in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, 
For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and pro prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand after he has suffered. He will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. I will divide the spoils with the strong, and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That's why he came. To be beaten for us. And I think it's easy to take uh, some lumps for your kids, to take hardship for your kids or for your spouse or for your parents or for your brothers and sisters and, and dear friends. But he did it for people who hated him. He did it for you and me while we were living in sin and selfishness. That's the perspective we need. We have this fear and this quarantine. Let's think on our Savior. It is easy to imagine that no one has ever faced a time like this. I've said that I don't know how many times. I've never, this is the worst time in my lifetime, and my parents and my grandparents. This is crazy. But the truth is that in, his, in the history of this earth, we live in an era of shocking peace and stability. To hear that if you get a disease, 2% of the people who get it die. Think of the time in the Black Plague. They would be cheering if that was the case. Only 2% and they're already sick and they die. And yet, this has wrecked people's lives. Don't let it wreck yours. God knows what he's doing. He, he, he decides when it's your time. Jesus lived in a very different time than we live. He lived in a time when, the, when death from Romans, leprosy, bandits, illness, plagues, famine, and all the dangers of that old world were a real and constant threat. He also knows what fears and anxieties are working their poison in us today. And if you've just kind of been conquered by that, give it to him. Ask the Lord to take that fear, to take your anxiety, to take your, take your doubt and, and just the stress of this time and to put your eyes on him, to find peace and trust and thanksgiving in him. And what did Jesus say about anxiety and worry and doubt and fear? I'm going to cheat again and go to Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not reap or sow or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you worry by adding a single hour to your life? That's one of the greatest lines for a wor worrier, someone who's ruled by anxiety. Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? No, you lose hours, days, maybe even years over a lifetime just by worrying. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. 
If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And it's hard to add to that. I want to finish with the history lesson. There's a man named Martin Rinkart. He was a Lutheran ministry at the beginning of the Thirty Years' War in England. And there was a walled city of Eilenburg, and it became a refuge for political and military fugitives. But the result was overcrowding. And there were plagues in the time and deadly pestilence and famine. Armies armies overran it three times. The Rinkart home was a beacon of light. It was a refuge for the victims, even though he was often hard-pressed to provide for his own family. During the height of a severe plague in 1637, Rinkart was the only surviving pastor in Eilenburg, the whole town, conducting as many as 50 funerals in a day. He performed more than 4,000 funerals in that year, including that of his own wife. Here's the hymn that he wrote near the end of that year. Now thank we all our God, with heart and hands and voices, who wondrous things has done, and whom this world rejoices, who from mother's arms has blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love, and still is ours today. O may this bounteous God through all our life be near us, with ever joyful hearts and blessed peace to cheer us, and keep us in his grace and guide us when perplexed, and free us from all ills in this world and the next. All praise and thanks to God, the Father now be given, the Son and him who reigns with them in highest heaven, the one eternal God whom earth and heaven adore, for thus it was, is now, and shall be evermore. Let's pray. Father, help us to be like this man, this pastor, who endured so much, who lost his own wife, and then wrote this hymn. Give us your perspective. Help us to be grateful. Help us to, help us to look around at the, the walls we live in, at the clothes we wear, at the food we eat, at the people we love, and just be blessed. Be thankful. Be grateful, Lord. Soothe our anxious hearts, our fearful minds. Help us to put our minds on eternal things, on good things, to reach out and connect and to be at peace that you know what you're doing. If one person, if ten people, if a hundred people are saved because life and death were now put in perspective properly for them, this has all been worth it. And Lord, we pray for those who are sick, uh, that you would work your healing on them. Help us to be wise about this and not uh, just flagrantly go around because we don't feel ill, to realize that we may be passing this thing on. Lord, help us to help our brother and our sister, to help our neighbor. We praise you in this time. We're grateful for all that you've blessed us with. And we ask for strength for tomorrow. But right now, for this evening, just as we go to bed, that you would calm our hearts, give us good dreams, and help us to be ready to go tomorrow. In your name, Jesus. Amen.